Chapter Eleven of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Eleven. Don't repeat it. I thought at first your niece was sick on Sunday," said Mrs. Prin. He came rushing into church without her, looking sort of pale and worried. I thought. I whispered to Maria that she must be sick. Then, when Mrs. Peters' baby cried so. And I looked around and saw her sitting over by the door. I was beat. I suppose it was your sister's coming that hindered her. No, it wasn't. She didn't know anything about my sister's coming until after John and I were gone to church. She was late. She generally is. Of all habits for a minister's wife, I think that's the worst. So hard on him because he has got to be on hand whether any of his congregation are dressed yet or not. Martha tries him a good deal that way, I guess. He spoke up Sunday as sharp as a thorn about it, and went off with me, leaving her upstairs prinking. Hannah wouldn't have hindered anybody. She's on time. Hannah is. She's worse than the sun. What beat me was her getting here on Sunday. She's a dreadful stickler for Sunday, but she broke down about three miles from here and stayed all night at a farmhouse. Then they brought her in to church. She wasn't going to stop here at all. But she saw the front door open. John left it open for his wife. But it's my opinion she wouldn't have come a step if Hannah hadn't arrived. The plain truth is, she got put out on Sunday and had a crying fit. I suppose her eyes were as red as beets. She's nothing but a child, you see. The way she came to be late was because she took a notion to can some fruit. Can fruit? Not on Sunday. Well, cook 'em over, you know. She took a notion they were spoiling, but I guess they'd have waited till Monday. That's just like a young thing; they always know everything to begin with. I offended her, I suppose. I spoke out before I thought, and wondered what Hannah would say to such goings on. Hannah brought John up to be real notional about Sunday, worse than me, a good deal, and I'm strict enough. So when I spoke my mind without a thought of doing any harm, she flared up and spoke as saucy as you please. I told John I thought he had looked out for a wife with a temper of her own, anyhow. I dare say he had a talk with her about the way she had treated me, and that is what upset her. Likely, they had some kind of tiff, I'm sure, because they were so dreadfully nice to each other the rest of the day. A couple of children. And Hepsy laughed a not unpleasant laugh. She thought she was simply repeating little interesting items. I was disappointed on Sunday. I must say, this from Mrs. Prin when she recovered from her surprise sufficiently to speak again. Woman fashion, I was looking out for a new bonnet. I heard that our minister's wife had a present of one on Friday, and when that little gray and white thing came to church again, I was greatly disappointed. A new bonnet. Echoed Aunt Hepsy, looking interested. Why, I guess not. I didn't hear anything about it. Who could have sent her one? Hannah didn't. For now I think of it, I heard her tell her only this morning that the gray bonnet was exactly the thing for her face, shape and color and all. There was a new bonnet sent in. I'm positive," said Mrs. Prin, nodding her head, "because I heard it from a source that couldn't have been mistaken. I don't like the gray bonnet myself." I don't think it's appropriate to a minister's wife, and I hoped she would wear the new one. In fact, I thought, of course, she would, out of respect to the givers. 
She wouldn't, said Aunt Hepsy decidedly. Not if she didn't take a notion. She has a mind of her own as well as the next one. Maybe it was a new bonnet they were talking about this morning. There was some nonsense about her wearing a coal hod, and about green being suited to her complexion. I didn't understand it, and I don't now. It couldn't have been about a bonnet, either, for there was a good deal of giggling over mutton-leg sleeves and smothering irons, and I don't know what all. I know I thought they acted rather silly for grown people, let alone ministers' folks, and Hannah was as bad as they, but it couldn't have had to do with a bonnet. Yes, it could. Mrs. Prynne understood perfectly, mutton-legs, smoothing irons and all. Two angry red spots glowed on her sallow cheeks. "'It wasn't a very Christian way of receiving a present, anyhow,' she said, trying to laugh. "'Well, I don't know,' said Aunt Hepsy, bridling. "'It was one thing for her to criticize her niece and nephew, and quite another to hear anyone else do so. "'If it was about a bonnet, unless it was something very elegant, which she doesn't need back here in a country village, or unless it was from some ignorant body who didn't know what else to do to show her goodwill, I should say it was a piece of impertinence.' Her bonnet is well enough, I'm sure, and folks like to use their own tastes, if they have any. Mercy knows there are things enough that people can send their ministers without going into bonnets. Though, for the matter of that, I don't know, but they would rather it be bonnets than marble cake. You never saw such a sight of marble cake as gets into this house. There are two jars in the pantry this minute full of it, and neither John nor Martha touch it. I overheard him telling her only this morning that she might find the walk out to the henhouse paved with marble when she came back, and she giggled right out and said, Marble cake, that's a good idea, John. It's almost hard enough. I don't believe some families in this village can have anything else to live on. They make so much of it. Silly Aunt Hepsy. Just simply silly, not malicious. She had lived for twenty-five years in the same neighborhood, and had been used to speaking her mind freely on all occasions, and the people had grown used to her, and had learned to say, Never mind, it's only Aunt Hepsy, or, What's the use of noticing it? Mrs. Joab Stone must talk, and Joab and we must endure it. Aunt Hepsy had not the remotest idea of being a mischief-maker. Silly young husband and wife not to remember that walls, or at least indiscreet aunts, had ears. There were women in the large country church to whom it would have done no harm at all to repeat the foolish words about the marble cake. Mrs. Prynne was not one of them. She did not send marble cake to the parsonage herself, but she knew just exactly who did, and was indignant for them. "'Well,' she said, drawing her little black shoulder shawl about her, as though she might be preparing to go, "'I'm sorry, I'm sure, if our gifts do not please them.' We are only common country people, and cannot be expected to understand city folks, I suppose. These are plenty hard times, though, and some people would be glad even of marble cake as a help toward living. I don't know how we are going to raise our pastor's salary this year, I'm sure. We are having hard work, and a good deal of it. Mr. Prynne is about discouraged. The Jenkins won't give a cent, and they've always been liberal. It was their uncle who died so suddenly last week, and Mr. Remington didn't say a word at the funeral about him. They didn't like it, poor things. You can't blame them. They have feelings, and they set a great store by him. If he was a hard old man, he was never hard to them. Then there are the Ferrands, kind of stuffy because the minister doesn't call on them oftener. 
Mr. Prynne says if he doesn't go there pretty soon, and take her along too, he doesn't believe they'll pay their subscriptions. And there's quite a number of other influential folks who are sort of out with him for one thing and another. I tell Mr. Prynne that the great difficulty is we are not social enough. A young minister is so bound up in himself and his wife and his home, somehow, that he forgets his social duties. I want to have a large gathering, a regular dinner, only to have it in the evening, and get everybody out and give them a chance to get acquainted with the minister's wife. She will never get around to them in all the world. They only made twenty calls last week. I counted them myself. And what is that in a parish of this size? I tell Mr. Prynne that the way we've got to manage is to do their calling for them. Get the people together and make them visit them. Then we could charge a good round price for the dinner and use the money to pay the minister's salary. He can afford to be sociable, then, for he will know that every word he speaks is helping his own pocket along. That's just where you are mistaken, said Mrs. Hepsey Stone. Now that the idea was put into bold language by another, she found that she did not like it so well as she had supposed. He won't hear to any such thing. I was talking to him about it this very day, and he was quite fierce. Said if people couldn't pay their minister through any robe but their stomachs, they didn't deserve a minister. He said he could live on less salary, but as for having it raised in any such way, it wasn't to be thought of for a moment. Neither he nor Martha would consent to having their self-respect trampled upon like that. I guess they will have to consent to having their salary raised in any way that the trustees think best, said Mrs. Prynne, rising at last, the two spots on her cheeks having grown a deeper red. It doesn't do for a minister to dictate too much to his people. Well, John Remington will have his own way. You will find out, or you will lose him. That's all there is about that. Mrs. Stone had risen also, and was looking with fierce dignity at her caller. At that moment no one could have made her believe that she approved of a society supper for the purposes of raising a pastor's salary. Very well, said Mrs. Prynne, with awful dignity. If people choose to get angry and leave because their people are economizing and contriving and working like slaves to support them, that's their own lookout, of course. There are other ministers in the world. Our church has never had to go a-begging for a pastor. I will bid you good night, Mrs. Stone. I hope Mr. Remington will not disapprove too much of the gingerbread. I'm sure I would not have ventured to bring it if I had imagined for a moment that he disapproved of little tokens of goodwill from his people. It is all new to me. I did not say any such thing, said indignant Aunt Hepsy. But Mrs. Prynne had said good night and was gone. With the minister's gingerbread that evening, his aunt served up her opinion of the giver. To her mind, she was a cantankerous woman, bent on making mischief, she had said things to her that very afternoon that made her feel like ordering her out of the house, whereupon the startled John roused himself from his half-mournful wonderings as to what Martha was doing now, whether Dolly did certainly get through all right, as she was in the habit of doing, and whether the unusually long ride had tired Mattie, and whether she was lying on the dear wide old lounge at this minute, in Aunt Hannah's cheery sitting-room, resting and thinking of him. From all this he roused himself to say earnestly, Aunt Hepsy, I ought to have told you, perhaps, that our neighbor is just a little inclined to look after other people's affairs as well as her own, 
and that we have to talk before her with utmost caution. The mildest expression of opinion is sometimes misunderstood by her, to such a degree that Mattie says she has learned to say only ah and indeed when she calls, and that she is sometimes afraid that even these words can be repeated with a wrong emphasis. The poor idiot of a lonesome husband could not resist a proud smile as he quoted this bright little speech of Mattie's. But Mrs. Stone did not smile. "'You needn't be afraid,' she said grimly. "'I'm not the one to make trouble. I've lived twenty-five years in the same village, and belong to the same church, and no one can say I ever made any trouble. It is not likely I would do it with my own nephew. I don't toady to people either.' I don't believe in it myself. Folks respect you more if you speak your mind once for all and have done with it than they do if you simper and say, ah, when you mean fiddlesticks. I know people. I haven't lived in this world sixty years for nothing. Though, to be sure, there are folks who, if they live to be a hundred, will not be likely to have many grains of sense. I can tell you one thing for your comfort. Your Matty, as you call her, has an enemy in that woman. Her ahs and indeeds that you think so much of have it done with her. She doesn't like her. She as good as said so this afternoon. The minister went upstairs, feeling that the day had been sixty hours long, and believing that two weeks under some circumstances might represent an eternity. As for Mrs. Stone, she washed the dishes with severity, setting the cups down hard and breaking the handle from the delicate cream pitcher whereupon she regarded it with a contemptuous sneer and said to it, "'Frail, slippery, trimmed-up thing, like its mistress.' Mrs. Stone was in a miserable humor. She had overworked all day, she had taken no nap, she had had no careful petting from Aunt Hannah or Dorcas. Above all, she had been rudely dealt with that afternoon. Mrs. Prynne had no business to say the things about John and Martha that she had. It was an insult.' If she did not like her minister, why didn't she go squarely to him and tell him so? That's what she, Hepsy Stone, would have done, instead of slipping in the back door and talking with a visitor. You think, perhaps, that Aunt Hepsy's conscience pricked her, thereby adding to the soreness of her nerves. I declare to you that such was not the case. Not the slightest idea that she had said anything imprudent, anything calculated to make trouble for anyone, had entered her mind. What had she said? Reported a few of the silly sayings and doings of a couple of young people, her own nephew and niece. It was not likely that she would say anything about her own folks to injure them. John needn't have treated her to a lecture on prudence and given her a dose of his baby Mattie's wisdom. She, a woman of sixty, even if she had had anything to say, she would not have said it to a manifest gossip like Mrs. Prynne, a woman with whom Martha was evidently too thick, or she would never have come to the back door with a little shawl over her head and bringing a gingerbread. She was sorry she had accepted the gingerbread. The idea of saying that there were other ministers in the world, just as though there were many young men like John. He wasn't perfect, of course. Who should know that better than his aunt? But he came as near to it as the most of them, she guessed. Too good for women like Mrs. Prynne, anyhow. As for Martha, if she wanted to wear a gray bonnet, she didn't see what earthly right they had to interfere with her. For her part, she was glad the child had spunk enough not to wear the new one, if it was sent to her. 
but it was just like Martha to go and offend people about nothing more important than a little hat to stick on the back of her head. I hope you understand what a whirl of contradictions the poor old mind was in. Neither is she alone in the world. There are many such, people who keenly feel the stings of the words of others, but who seem unable to comprehend that there is ever the slightest approach to a sting in words of theirs. Besides, the biscuits were heavy, and Aunt Hepsy had a decided touch of dyspepsia. Perhaps you think Mrs. Prynne sat down at home with her sewing, and held discreet communication with her conscience, and resolved to keep her lips securely closed. There are such women, bless them, women who bottle up in their safe, warm hearts material which would make a moral cyclone large enough to sweep the town, and who smile and pray and wait until the air is clearer, and the time has come for sunny and soothing words. Mrs. Prynne was not one of them. She did not wait even for supper, Mr. Prynne being late, but threw that much-enduring shawl over her head and went the back way to Mrs. Pryor's, where she told in detail all that she had heard and much that she had imagined. Perhaps these ladies were not to blame that Mrs. Wakeman took it into her head to call on Mrs. Pryor that evening, nor can we consider it strange that they felt obliged to take her somewhat into confidence. They did try to be careful. When Mrs. Pryor made the unguarded remark that the Remingtons might not like the milk she was sending them any better than they did marble cake, Mrs. Prynne, who knew that Mrs. Wakeman sent the last loaf of that article, gave a warning, Hush! Don't say one word about that! After which, of course, common propriety demanded an explanation, and the story about the marble walk to the hen-house came to the front. How could they help it? Perhaps it was merely a coincidence that the Committee on Entertainments had to be called on that evening by both Mrs. Pryor and Mrs. Prynne in order that they might determine as to the character of the next sociable. If it was, the opportunity was improved by enlightening them in regard to the pastor's views as to raising money through the stomach. Of course this was necessary, in order that the committee might be forearmed, though Mrs. Pryor did remember to say that she hoped they would be careful about repeating it, because such talk as that would make it simply impossible to raise the salary. Perhaps you are not so well acquainted with human nature, but that you will be astonished to hear that three days afterward Mrs. Hoyt, who had been out of town, left her morning work undone, and went in haste and dismay to call on her most intimate friend, Mrs. Denton, saying almost as soon as the first greetings were over, "'What is all this I hear, Mrs. Denton? What has been going on in the week that I have been away? Mr. Hoyt came home last night with the wildest sort of a story, to the effect that Mr. Remington had said that if this church has another sociable, he will leave town for good the next morning, and that he is not to be insulted by having gifts sent to his door, as though he were a beggar, and a great deal more of the same sort.' Mr. Hoyt says the village is in a ferment, and he is afraid some steps will have to be taken, that quite a number of the leading men say they fear he is not the man for the church. Mrs. Denton, what in the world does it mean? It means, said Mrs. Denton solemnly, that Satan has been at his old business, going to and fro upon the earth, seeking whom he may devour, and he has almost devoured our poor young minister and his little wife. I am too indignant to live. You haven't heard the worst, not by a great deal. What do you say to its being currently reported that he does not live happily with his wife? That they quarreled last Sunday and kept it up all through Monday and on Tuesday she went away not to return? 
It is said that Mr. Remington declared he could not live with her because she was so utterly ignorant of managing a house, and so ruinous in her expenditures for dress, that he felt sure she would bring both him and the church to disgrace, and a great deal more of a like character. "'What does it all mean?' repeated Mrs. Hoyt, her face drawn with pain, her voice full of the deepest anxiety. "'It means exactly what I have told you, that Satan has been at work.' I don't know what other emissaries he found to help him roll up so large a ball of gossip in so short a time, but of course you know that Mrs. Prynne was one of them? Mrs. Hoyt groaned. I'm afraid we shall lose him, she said pitifully. I'm afraid we shall, said Mrs. Denton, winking hard to keep back the tears. Flesh and blood cannot stand everything. I know I would leave if I were he. It's disgraceful. I am too indignant to live." At which very moment, if history can be believed, little Mrs. Matty was saying with a sweet, moved face and a tender voice, Oh, Aunt Hannah, it is blessed to have a people whom you love, and who love you as ours do us. Even Mrs. Prynne is very fond of John, and so is Mr. Pritchard, I think, turnips and all, with a little laugh. I almost know that we shall live and die among them. John says it is a disgrace to the cause that a man must always be moving from church to church. He believes in long pastorates. Does he, indeed, Mrs. Matty? What if you could see him now, alone in his study, his head bowed low on his arms, which rest upon a large open Bible, where he has just been reading the words, They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. End of chapter 11